Hey, everybody. Thank you for tuning in to Dear Asian Americans. Happy Mother's Day. It is May 10th, Mother's Day here in the States, and we want to wish all the moms out there an amazing, beautiful, happy, and healthy Mother's Day, especially to my wife and mother to our two beautiful children. Kyungwa, thank you for being awesome. Thank you for everything. Uh, Dear Asian Americans would not exist without her support and her believing in our mission that our stories matter. So thank you for all that you do. I love you. The kids love you. And we are so grateful that you are the kid's mom and my wife. Today's show features another amazing mother, Lee Wen, uh, who is a mother herself and an executive at an ad agency. Really, really excited to share her story with you all, trying to balance being great at work, being great as a mom, and the struggles that she went through to find her place in the world of advertising at the highest levels. Again, let's celebrate Mother's Day. Thank you to everybody out there um, who birthed us, who raised us, who fed us, who take care of us, who took care of us. And maybe your mothers didn't know how to say I love you in the same way that we wanted to. Maybe the only thing that you got was, hey, have you eaten? Or come home early. Or however else our mothers chose to say I love you in their own words. So thank you. And to my mom, Oma, Komawayo, thank you for tuning in. And without further ado, here now is my conversation with Lee. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Asian Americans. Uh, Wherever you are, whenever you may be listening to this, we wish you all the health, all the happiness in the world. We are in May, which is Asian Pacific American Heritage Month. Mother's Day um, is around the corner from when we're uh, recording this. It probably just passed when you're listening to this. Um, so we celebrate all the mothers out there, uh, particularly the mothers who, in addition to being mothers, are working and they're trying to do both. Many of us grew up with parents who um, did either or, I guess not either or, just the mother part. And and so, you know, in our generational advancement and um, evolution as Asian Americans um, in the past few decades, I think we've been really lucky and amazing to see uh, moms who continue their careers and at least seemingly try to do everything. Uh, my guest today is a friend I've known for almost 20 years, and she is one of these people. Mother, a badass executive at an aid agency, even has enough time to have created her own cooking Instagram channel, which we'll talk about too. But to find somebody that looks like us at the highest levels of advertising in one of the world's biggest and most world-recognized agencies and to win awards while doing it is so inspiring and so awesome. Um, she's created some of the campaigns and ads that you and I have seen and have laughed about. And um, if you are a big car show fan, um, you have probably walked through some of her creations in the form of exhibits at auto shows across the world. Um, brings me so much pleasure and excitement uh, to welcome Lee Wen to the show. Hi, Lee. Hi. Thank you so much for having me. That was a very flattering intro that I did not, <laughs> did not expect you to say. So thank you. Uh, part-time podcast host, part-time hype man is, is my new job. <laughs> um, so tell us about uh, Lee. Uh, what do you do now? Where are you? And um, tell us a little bit about you. Yeah, I'm currently a creative director um, working at Saatchi and Saatchi. Um, if anyone knows Saatchi and Saatchi, our biggest car client is Toyota. So I'm working a lot on that brand, um, creating content uh, mostly in the digital space. 
Very cool. Um, so advertising is something that I think has taken on a different term and different meaning in the last 20 years, obviously, since when you and I were in school, it was very singular and it was not digital. That D word really hadn't come into play um, until um, you had begin in your in, uh, begin in your career. Um, I'm curious to know what got you interested in advertising in the first place and, and to get a better understanding of that. Um, I want to go even more far back and to understand how your family became Vietnamese American. Um, how did you end up in Southern California? And tell me what your early childhood experience was like. Uh, yeah, so my family um, immigrated over here after the war. Um, April 28th, 1975. I actually have that tattooed right here on my wrist. Um, that wow. <laughs> just as a reminder to myself to be thankful. But um, yeah, they came over here. Uh, we were they were very fortunate because my grandpa was a colonel in the war, so he uh, was able to secure um, a plane to to bring the whole family over. Um, they ended up in Vista, California, in the San Diego area, uh, which a majority of my family is still in that area right now. Um, but my mom and dad happened to move over to Orange County, LA area. We were the only family that um, kind of moved up to to that area, so. Um, yeah, I think your question was, how did, like, how did I get, how did I get started? Yeah. Tell me about your early years of growing up Lee in, um, in in Cerritos. Um, so actually I grew up in Buena Park. Um, I grew up, I started going to a Catholic school, um, predominantly Hispanic and I experienced racism very early on. So I think not feeling like I belonged is a very big theme in my life. Um, growing up. Um, after Catholic school was when um, it was suggested that I apply for the GATE program, which is how I, I ended up in Cerritos. Mm. Um, but I lived in Buena Park up until I was 18. Um, uh. So after um, moving to go to school in Cerritos in elementary school, um, I was part of the GATE program. And for those of you who don't know what GATE is, it's basically like, it's called Gifted and Talented education or something like that and you have to take a test to get into those specific classes that are taught um in certain schools um so that already once again is like another experience where like i'm segregated and i did not want to be like it wasn't by choice but obviously having asian american parents they were thrilled and i was not so that was um an adjustment i had to make once again very early in my life um and then after that i had to a big part of the gate program, everyone who went to it, like wanted to go to Whitney. Whitney is a magnet high school. Um, again, a dream for Asian American parents, <laughs> not my dream. Um, I just wanted to be normal and like go to like the public school. I wanted to go to Cerritos high school um, and not sort of have to be subjected to like another sort of pressure cooker situation. Mm. Um, so I, took the test just to, my mom was like, you can, we can decide, you know, if you pass or not, if, we're, if you're going to go. And I just did it just to prove to myself that I could do it. Um, so I passed. <laughs> and of course she forced me to go and I cried for like months, I feel like. Um, but yeah, going into high school, um, again, another situation where you're kind of segregated to like a certain group of people. There were a lot of Asian Americans in that school. Um, and my... It's funny because even though there were a lot of Asian Americans, I still felt like I didn't belong because there was a lot of Koreans, there was a lot of like Filipinos, not many Vietnamese people, but then 
the group that I ended up become, becoming friends with were mostly Korean. Um, so once again, feeling like that, you know, not belonging, not only because I, I'm going to like a magnet high school, um, but also not feeling like I belonged um, within the group of friends that I had. So common theme. But what, what I know about your high school is that it's a very small populated school. So, you know, it's not a, my, my high school class, I think was like seven or 800. So there's a chance that I don't know everybody for sure. I don't know everybody, but in your environment, everybody knew everybody. Yeah. Um, the feeling of feeling other is fascinating to me because you know everybody, right? And everybody opted in, whether they did or their parents did, mm-hmm. um, for their students to participate in this program. Talk to me about that because I think it's a very fascinating experience because, as you mentioned, um, Asian Americans are the dominant ethnic group at a school like Whitney. Obviously, the school and the administration population was not reflective of that. Mm-hmm. And I think school districts in the 90s were trying to figure out what to do with the influx of Asian American students who were um, just, I don't know, springing up everywhere. What was that in terms of your identity and particularly what you wanted to do with your life? Um, Because I I imagine the influence is not only from home, but from your friends and the conversations that they had about Mm -hmm. the expectation of what a good Whitney grad is supposed to do. Starting with where you go to college and what you study. Yeah, I think I don't, I don't think it's a surprise that I identify as being like the black sheep, whether that being in my family or even at Whitney. Um, the school was small. I think the class was no more than maybe a hundred people. Our graduating class. Um, so yeah, you everybody knows each other. There's a ton of pressure because there's so many. Asian American parents who are immigrants who have the same sort of objective for their kids to either become doctors or lawyers. My dad wanted me to be a lawyer because I argued all the time. (laughs) Um, But, you know, that's they bring them there to breed them to be ideally these types of people. Um, And so I think there's a lot of pressure that is put on um, you, not only from your parents, but also your peers. You have people there who are so I was about to cuss. Can I cuss? (laughs) Sure. Um, who are just so fucking smart, like, and it's the bar is like so high. So even, even the person who had like was not as high of a bar is still a really smart person, you know. So you just have this pressure where even though, for someone like me who wasn't really into it and like wanted to do my own thing, I still maintained a pretty decent GPA just to like, you know, keep up. Yeah, keep up. Like it's it's not like I for me my own pressure. Like I couldn't. I couldn't go there and totally not care. Um, but I, I actually <laughs> feel like it was, in the end, a really great decision um, to go to that school because yeah. although my first few years were turbulent, like, I was still figuring myself out. And, like, as an, a creative, like, that's a very natural part of my own self-discovery. But the later years, um, I'm still f- great friends with everybody, like, who I was friends with then. And that's not very normal either to, to keep in yeah. touch with your high school friends. And I think part of that has to do with the fact that it's such a small community. Um, But then the other part of that is that drive that was instilled in me um, really pushed me to want to accomplish my own goals. And that's why I'm so driven. Like I'm a naturally driven person, but that I think took me over the edge, like that type of thinking and that mentality um, really shaped, I think, my career. How did you discover that advertising was a career option for you and art center is not a popular college destination for many Whitney grads. How did that come into your 
environment in your atmosphere? Um, so like, if you know me, I'm like, not really like, I'm kind of crazy. <laughs> so like, I think I messed around a lot in high school up until I knew that I had to like, think about college. Um, so by the time I got to my sophomore year, I was like, okay, you know what, I'm going to do some research and kind of figure out what it is that I want to do. There's two things that I know that I, that I've always been into. One of it is like arts, like working with my hands. And I've always been like an artsy child. Um, the other is I was really good at computers. Um, I used to fix, um, a computer that my dad had in our, in our home. Like many times I would hack into things. I would think I was like a hacker and like, you know, all those things, all the things I shouldn't be doing. But um, I, funny enough, Googled like uh, what type of career would match those two things and graphic design came up. Um, so I learned a little bit about graphic design. That was like a, a fairly new industry. and um, But I was like, dude, this sounds perfect for me. So then I found the best school for that because I wanted to go to the best school and that was at the time Art Center. I took Art Center at night classes while I was in high school, first thinking that I wanted to go into something more architectural, but there was too much math in there. So <laughs> I, I took the graphic design class um, shortly after and then fell in love with mm. the fact that I can use a computer as a paintbrush. So yeah, that's how I discovered Art Center. And I was really determined to get into the best, you know, get the best education for for that career. I, I hear themes of regardless of what situation you were put in and you resisted uh, or, or you um, had some challenges with your early childhood education at the Catholic school, almost to the point of resentment and then fighting your, your mom's desire for you to go to Whitney. But all those tough years and experiences sort of created the diamond out of you, which was you wanted to pursue something at not only creative, which is creative and technical at the same time, as you just beautifully mentioned, painting with a computer, but also to pursue it at the highest level, which is the admirable thing to do, right? If you're going to do something, do something well. Yeah. And and so from Art Center, um, what did you want to do? Is where you are today, what you had envisioned Lee doing now, 15 years later? Yeah. The, this is like really weird to say, but it's true. I When I got to Art Center and I understood what kind of career I could have, um, I immediately knew I wanted to be a creative director. That was my goal. And it was my goal because I knew that that was the highest that you could get. <laughs> like, that's so Asian <laughs> of me, right? Like, but um, yeah, to your point, like the environment that I grew up in and, um, you know, the, the parents that I had, it just instills in you this sort of drive, but also the stubbornness to like not want to settle for anything less than the best. So learning what a creative director was while I was at Art Center and then understanding that creative directors typically run um, advertising agencies or like, you know, um, design houses or like whatever the case. Um, I kind of went that way. Like I figured out what type of person I wanted to be. And then I went backwards to figure out where those people would work and then figured out <laughs> what I needed to do to get into those places. So um, very strategic way to approach my college and my career. But that's like my mind is very like I just operate that way. I think that's awesome. Uh, you mentioned earlier that your father had wanted you to become a lawyer. Obviously, telling dad that you want to go make advertisements or going into the arts field may have not been something that he expected to hear. Yet you backed it up with, but I'm going to Art Center. I'm going to the best school for that. What Was there support, unilateral support from your family in the pursuit of and career in the arts? 
I wouldn't say there was a lot of moral support. He didn't get it. He talked a lot of shit like the entire time I was in school. Like he financially supported like my living situation, but like the entire education um, was funded by, by my own loans. So like there wasn't a lot of support there. And I, there was again, a lot of resentment, but I, it, it fueled me like it, it made me mm. want to prove him wrong. Um, and I think that a lot of people at the time didn't really understand like art school, like, you know, why would you go to Whitney and then go to art school? Um, but I actually think it's kind of a hidden strength to be able to have like a, an academic sort of like mind and apply it to an area that is a little bit outside of the box, you know? Sure. I, I think the misperception about art school is that you guys just sit around and draw all day. Yeah. Uh, which which may or may not be true, but obviously there is it's both art and science, and there are technical skills that you learn, and there are different ways to teach a lot of different creative sciences, if you will. So I had the same mis- misperceptions about art school too, and yeah, I, I think you know another friend of mine um, who actually is our creative director here um, on, on the podcast and stuff. She went to USC and then to Art Center. So imagine, you know, her peer saying, wait a minute, you went to college and then you're going to another college. I keep mentioning to her, you should have never gone to USC in the first place. But um, her Korean parents told her to. Yeah. So at least, you know, you didn't have to do that and then pivot yeah. to Art Center, which I think is the, the right choice looking back. Let's talk about your earlier years in advertising. Um, I recruited for a little bit in advertising when I was in college around the same time as you. I remember complete lack of diversity. I remember asking to do everything for pennies because there were so many people. You'd be lucky to work here. Therefore, your starting salary is going to start with a three, maybe even a two. Um, and that's not 300, 200,000. That was 30 something, 20 something thousand. Um, and even with inflation, it's still nothing. Um, but it was a highly competitive field um, in a particularly non-diverse um, industry or community, and even then still controlled by a number of a small number of large entities. Um, how did you break in and how did you feel in terms of your belonging or chip on your shoulder needing to prove yourself in your earlier years? Yeah, I um, So the way that I, so my first advertising agency was Team One, um, and they work on the Lexus account. And the way that I broke in was I did the sneaky thing where I cold cold called a bunch of like I found numbers of either like the d- the directors who worked at the agencies and like acted as, as if I knew them. So if I ran into their um, coordinator, I'd be like, "Hey, can I uh, speak to Tim?" And they'd be like, "Who's this?" I'm like, "It's Lee." You know, <laughs> and then um, like ninety percent of the time that didn't work, uh, but it worked on. Uh, the the design director at the time at Team One, <laughs> and he took my call, and pure coincidence, like looked at my book and remembered my name because he happened to go to the Art Center grad <sighs> show, and then Whoa. he was like, "I actually saved your card. So I'm really glad that you called. Like, why don't you come in like for an interview?" So then I I ended up coming in. I don't remember like a, a week or something, and then. Um, it went really great. And then he ended up offering me the job shortly after as a junior art director or designer. So yeah, once again, like a really like, 
tactical way to like find a job, but I, I, I knew that there was a lot of competition, so I had to stand out. So for me, it was like figuring out a way to um, not have to go through the process that would like, I'd be like hundreds and hundreds of applicants, you know? That's crazy. Um, if, if you're young folks in college or early career listening, take take notes. One, one, you have to be the best at what you do. You can't hack your way into a job you're not qualified for. So that's what you demonstrated. You did your work. You proved yourself. You went to the best school and you kicked ass at your grad show enough that the creative director of one of the biggest agencies at the time still today um, remembered your name. That's badass. And then you play the phone game, which might be harder to play now because nobody has a desk phone and people aren't picking up calls they don't know. But that's cool. Thank you. And you just needed to work once. Yeah, I, right? that's, that was my thing. Like, I think I, I remember I had like a list of like 100 agencies like in the L.A. area, even like outside of the L.A., like other states. Um, but yeah, I, I spent hours like doing that. And, and you, know, you just need one person. Like one person to just, pick up, but just, yeah. just need one. Yes, it works. <laughs> it's just it's like it's like that at everything, right? Like you you need uh, one man or one woman to say yes to you. Mm-hmm. You need one person to give you your first break. Yep. You know, I think sometimes we overwhelm ourselves with this great expectation of everything needs to be perfect, but it starts with one one yes at a time. You know, I talk to a lot of students who are just stressing over recruiting especially now as we near or at graduation time. It's like you don't get an extra award for having 10 different job offers. You need one. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so focus on the ones that matter to you. I That's, that's a cool story. Um, you got to have hustle and you got to be willing to work your face off. I think that's a lesson that never, never grows old. What was that first experience like? Um, were there other people that looked like you? Um, the person you mentioned that gave you the opportunity was a man. Were there other women in the industry at the higher levels? And were there particularly people that look like me and you that you could look up to then? Um, No, I can't even remember one Asian American face in the team that I was in or even on the creative floor. Um, There were women, um, but not in like leadership sort of roles. Like there were like maybe like senior art directors um, that were women. But yeah, it's. Even to this day, I think it's like not as common. It's a lot better, but uh, no, there there was there definitely wasn't some sort of mentorship that I felt maybe because of both of those reasons, mm. um, and it did it did uh, affect me. I think I I was at Team One for maybe a year and a half until I kind of burnt out, partially probably because of how hard school was, and then not having a break, but also not having a mentor. Um, so I, I felt really like lost. For, for a time. Like I reached my goal to get in the agency and then I burnt out like fairly fast. And on the mentorship angle, how has that changed for you, both from the mentee side of eventually having found your tribe and as you have progressed into leadership positions at various agencies, what have you done on the other side to make sure that nobody ever feels the way that you felt 15 years ago? It's a huge part in who I am as a manager and a mentor and a boss. Like I take everything that I felt um, that I've experienced that I wouldn't want another person to feel or like what I would have liked to happen. And I, I put those into action um, every single day. I, I would hope that if you were to ask anybody who has worked under me or like on my team, that they would feel that. 
being able to be seen or heard um, or just respected uh, goes a really long way um, when you're working under somebody. And um, I try to practice that every day. I think from observation of you via social media and just being a friend, I think human leader is the word that comes to mind regardless of the work at hand. I think just the photos and the videos that you've shared with your colleagues and the people that work on your team, uh, I, I think they're pretty lucky because at the end of it, you're making advertisements or multi-billion dollar brands to move the needle on purchasing decisions. It's not life-saving work, but unfortunately, you and I and many people listening have worked for people for whom they treated as such. And I understand uh, pressures are hard, goals and incentives are aligned to instill that sort of behavior sometimes, but it's nice once in a while to find somebody who cares for you as a human being and then the work. Yeah. Um, the work will get done, needs to get done. And that's a really big part of my philosophy. I've always said I, I focus on the people first and then I think good work comes from happy people. Um, so if you build a foundation, I think the roots of that foundation are your team and like the makeup and like yeah. the culture and then the work. If you just, if you hire someone who is talented, they'll figure it out. I totally agree with what you're saying. And it's funny. It's really ironic. Like as I'm talking to you, it's, I, you would never have thought like someone who felt like such a black sheep would be a quote unquote leader um, or like be, be seen in those like eyes to other people. So it's kind of like a really, gratifying feeling, which is why mentorship is such a important aspect for me, because I at least feel like I'm making a difference. It's a testament to you and to very to, to the many people out there um, for whom tough circumstances and bad experiences come your way and, and how we respond to it. Um, I'm sure there are many people who have felt as you did in high school and growing up, mm -hmm. who bottle up that negative energy and, and just are just mean and angry and resentful for the rest of their lives. And um, if and how, I don't know, but when they get to these leadership positions, they just treat people badly because it's, Hey, I went through it. So you should too. Or, um, using really toxic phrases like putting in your dues or, you know, um, this is the way that you grow up in this industry and then just, you know, putting people down with really forgetting both the positive and the negative, uh, feelings that we feel when, uh, leaders and managers treat us. Um, in, in different ways. Um, you've progressed your career through various agencies, um, many of them household names. Um, what I see as a common thread, though, is Toyota slash Lexus has been your client throughout. Um, I hope everybody knows that they are parent or the parent company is a Japanese company at this point. Um, they obviously have their American divisions, led by folks here um, re as recently in, in Torrance here in Southern California and um, mo moved over to Texas. And we talked about sort of the team not being diverse at all from a race or a gender perspective. Were there points where you felt that creative decisions representing what were in essence Asian brands in America, there were unnecessary challenges being thrown in the way or messaging and communication challenges that were uh, rearing its ugly head because of the lack of customer voice in the decision-making rooms? Uh, yeah, I wouldn't say that like, I, I would feel that way specifically about 
specific like Toyota or Lexus like projects I've been on, but I've definitely witnessed that type of challenge where you're we we may be presenting to an Asian client and you have like an all white cast of people who are presenting and talking about their culture and it's like I don't know if that's I don't <laughs> maybe you shouldn't say that or like that might not make you know I think there's like a sort of like a privileged not intentional but like that privileged approach of like well you know like I'm I'm a creative director therefore like I know what is the best thing to be done here and not really bringing in someone with more insight um, cultural insight to kind of help facilitate what you're selling. Um, I've seen that happen. I think we all have. Um, I've been in client services too, and it's just, I think, privilege compounds and the blinders compound as well. Um, so I don't think people are inherently mean or evil or uh, ill-spirited. Um, something's just probably better left unsaid. Um, I want to get your take on the industry as a whole. Um, advertising has always been a very popular choice because of um, the medium that you and I grew up watching, which were TV ads. Super Bowl ads were the creme de la creme. And I'm sure in your industry, um, winning awards and, and you know having those experiences to create and produce those shows um, were, were a great big honor. And you know even some things that I dreamt of doing when I grew up when I was a much, much younger child. Um, the world has changed, obviously, with the introduction of banner ads on the internet and now with everything digital and everything influencer and social and everything in between, that the world has changed. With that changed, how has your industry changed and how have you managed to stay ahead of the game and relevant and just kicking ass in your industry? Yeah, I actually, when I went into advertising, I was more interested in like packaging and print and branding. Um and then within my stint at Team One, I shortly like foresaw that digital was slowly creeping up and becoming something relevant. So I intentionally, like with my next move, um, I focused a little bit more on agencies that had more of a digital offering because I felt like that's something that I had to understand and learn more of if I wanted to continue to evolve. Um, so even during my sh short time, like I've been, I don't know, how, what year is it? I've been doing this for 13 to 15 years. Um, and in, in that time, I've seen that shift happen. And even today, um, even with a this whole COVID-19 situation, um, all of us having to work from home and seeing the speed at which we need to evolve quickly mm -hmm. in order to um, be prepared for the future um, is a testament within itself that like, digital is just, it's here. It's been here. Um, and for those who aren't um, able to evolve to, you know, the meet the needs of the consumer and how we're evolving as like a social and cultural landscape, it's mm -hmm. you're going to get left behind. Um, yeah, the change, the change. It's crazy, because I think in the beginning, when I started print and broadcast and all that was like, still the sexy thing to do. Right. Um, halfway through my career, it was like, for those who were smart, knew that digital is really, really growing rapidly. And then today, I feel like digital is king. Like right. 100%. Yeah. And we'll change again. We don't know mm -hmm. to what or when. Um, I want to get your take on something that I always found super fascinating, which is marketing to people like me and you. Um, second, potentially third generation Asian Americans. English is our preferred language. We were educated here. 
on paper, on our resumes, we know we'd look no different than our non-Asian counterparts. Um, yet we respond to marketing a little bit differently. Mm-hmm. Um, when big, large brands think about multicultural marketing or Asian marketing, it's usually um, in language, whether it's Vietnamese or Korean or Mandarin, and targeted towards our parents' generation. Brands and marketers have always had, in my opinion, a challenge marketing to us because we're not mainstream demographic. We listen to different music or tastes are different. Our collective um, education, disposable income, all that levels are attractive to demo- or demograph- demographers. Um, how do you, how would you market to yourself and, and what are some tips that you can share from a, um, from your perspective of what makes our community unique and also a challenge in, in marketing to us? Mm-hmm. That's such an interesting question. Um, I think I've always felt like our generation, like after our parents, is kind of like responsible for kind of, I've been using this term a lot, like like breaking the chain. You know, there's there's this expectation of immigrants who come here and like the life that they're trying to build that they instill in their children. Their children end up like, carrying the burden on their back and then having children of their own who kind of get a fresh slate. I feel like I'm like in this middle ground of like breaking this chain so my daughter can have like a brand new experience. But the funny thing is we are, I think we understand both sides. Like I I think it's really strange when people have to put Asian American people in ads to like market to us because I like the same thing that like anybody else likes. I think we're, we're all American at this point, so I think we identify as American. So whatever American demographics are in terms of like taste and culture, it's all the same. It's not like Asians specifically like only certain things. You know, like we all have um, our own personal taste. But uh, yeah, but there's this also the sensitivity to our immigrant parents and like this level of like um, responsibility that we have. So like I can understand why they have a tough time figuring out how to market to such a niche group of people. Um, and I think part of that has to do with, I don't know, maybe there aren't a lot of strategists who are Asian Americans who work in agencies, therefore they aren't really culling the right insights um, specific to that market because they're just looking at us as Asian. Right. And if you're Asian, like I get targeted ads in Vietnamese, I can't read it. <laughs> like, <laughs> I don't, I can't you're like, it. how did you find my address and know I lived here? Yeah, just because my last name's Nguyen. Yep. You think I like pho, which I do, but <laughs> which there. Uh, but you know, it's it's like that weird middle ground where like it's when you look at agencies and how they market, it's a very you're either in this bucket or you're in this bucket. Right. Um, and this middle area that we're in, that is a transitional stage and you know, it's not going to the way that we are, are isn't going to last for a, while, a long time and I think that's why it's hard. Like it's it's so s- specific. I, I, it is a challenge. You know, I was having a recent conversation with somebody who is helping with um, Asian American or Asian community outreach for the census. And they're tasked to do both. They're tasked to talk to our parents, basically, with in-language stuff and instructions and messaging that gets to them, um, the newspapers and the TV shows that they consume. And then they have to talk to us. So, you know, they reached out to say, hey, you know, how can we work with the podcast to make sure that it gets into the ears of people that care? Because there's really no, we don't, we don't have our own BET. We don't have a Telemundo. We don't have a mainstream or even 
a, a household name because we're not a monolith. Mm-hmm. Can you imagine programming for one Asian American TV channel? Mm-hmm. Like it, it doesn't it doesn't work. We can't agree on a color. We can't agree on a food that represents us, and that's beautiful because that just means we are so diverse. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think as brands progress and newer brands and more uh, as, as the medium itself changes too, um, really really fascinated to see um, how people market to us because I think it's nice to see people who look like us in ads as long as it doesn't feel like it's deliberately placed there to mm-hmm. check the box. Yeah. At, at the moment, I feel like that's the case, right? It's like, we got to advertise to Asian Americans, go cast an Asian American. I'm like, well, what's mm-hmm. the intent? Like, right. like, what is it that you're, what message are you trying to get across? Like, what's the objective? And like, I don't, is the Asian person the right, like, you know, person to deliver that message or like, it just depends. Like it's, it's yeah. not like a one, one size fits all. Like it, it's, it's not. Right. But but I think even having you or somebody else in your position in the room to even declare that notion of we're complicated, we're different, how you came to America under what circumstances greatly changes your impression of what America is. Um, I, I got to be honest, people have heard me say this often on this show. I was not informed enough and I was not ready to hear all the refugee stories from my Vietnamese friends. I can't imagine it. That wasn't my experience yeah. because I am also blinded by my own experience and my own privilege. Immigrating to America meant actively choosing to jump on a plane with resources to come here to start anew. Mm-hmm. That wasn't like that for everybody. Mm-hmm. And so if I have that challenge, some of our non-Asian friends, um, you know, older white men in these leadership positions, how are we ever going to work, you know, what, what challenge does it present for them to understand where we come from collectively mm-hmm. so that they are making appropriate and sensitive and inclusive decisions on really marketing, which is the, the touch point for connection to brands and, and to people. So I think um, really excited to see w- where things go. Um, obviously, with, with all that's going on with, with COVID and stuff, brands are introspecting and figuring out um, how to best allocate their resources and what they want to be known for coming out of this. Because overnight, buying cars or buying football tickets doesn't seem to be the most important thing in the world. Um, so how do you, as you mentioned earlier, the, the human side, like how do you be human first? Because yeah. we'll, we'll sell cars later eventually. We'll play football eventually, and that's going to be okay. Um, but right now, what do people need to hear? Um, so you are the proud co-lead of a resource group at your company um, geared towards parents. Um it's a challenging duality of identity. Um, it's not binary. You're your parent and an executive. How has that balance been for you? And how do you think it's been different from the people that you worked for 15 years ago, who obviously were a little bit older, maybe had kids, maybe it didn't. And what are some of the lessons that you are learning daily in how to be a great mom at home first, and then a great leader at work? Mm-hmm. It's hard. Like, I, uh, when I first became a mother, I, I think I still am the only woman creative director and the only, uh, not, the only woman creative director that has a, a child and then the only Asian American creative director in the agency. So I felt a lot of pressure and I once again purposefully didn't want to let that show or like 
bring my quality of work down. So I continued to work hard. Um, but it, there was a lot of, as a lot of moms feel guilt about like, you know, wanting to carve out a space for yourself here as a woman, as an Asian American, um, and then feeling guilty that you're not doing enough here as a mother. So the first two years, um, I had to find that balance, um, between where I give and where I take and where I just, you know, let go of control. Um, it took a while to kind of figure that out. I think I'm in a better place now, but, uh, you know, in a nutshell, I think it's about picking and choosing your battles and learning how to let go of control in situations that, you know, maybe it's not that important at the end of the day. It's like this thing happens like at work and you just let it play out because it's not going to impact the greater like holistic picture. And maybe it's better for me to spend time with my daughter like for an hour and miss this optional meeting just because I was going to show my face or something. You know what I mean? Like it's, but it's hard. It's, it's hard every day. Um, but I think all mothers who are um, working mothers and mothers who work in, in demanding high-level positions like would say the same thing I'm saying right now. Um, yeah. Thank you for doing both. Um, my wife obviously does both. There's so many countless other women out there who are doing both. And um, I just decided we're going to air this episode on Mother's Day. So happy Mother's oh. Day to everybody listening. Um, well, I mean, it's in like three days, so I think we can turn it around. Well, that's nice. Yeah, happy Mother's <laughs> Day to everybody listening. Happy Mother's Day. It's underrated. I think corporate America, corporate culture has this work above all or else. I hope, I guess, let me, not I hope, let me ask you how you've been feeling and talking with your colleagues and friends. How has COVID-19 and all of us being home and the balance in our face of having to deal with, not deal with, um, balancing parenting and working and the expectations that arise from both angles. What are you optimistic about the conversations that are going to happen from a balanced perspective and prioritizing parental needs as we come mm -hmm. out of this? Because people, I mean, I used to be frightened if, you know, oh my God, baby's crying in the back of a conference call. Now, who cares? This is yeah. who I am. This is my life. And the expectation that we have perfect etiquette and protocol, even with yeah. clients, people are a little bit more forgiving, I feel like. Um, what, what are you seeing and what are you hopeful for? I actually, and I don't want this to sound wrong, but like I actually feel like it's the best thing that could have happened to us as a society in many ways. Like whether or not that is for political reasons or um, something like balancing parents' um, expectations and workload in the workplace um, or even pushing forward with like digital-like thinking. Um, it's something that really... I think forced everybody to kind of relook at everything. Like our our agency is doing that right now, um, and it's refreshing to sort of see all the things that we had talked about, like with peers or like in groups that maybe didn't get to the level of leadership, right. um, has now become a real consideration and like a real issue of like how do we move forward um, with all of these things in mind. Um, and part of the reason why I joined that parent group to you know, co-lead was because I want to make this difference and I want everyone to understand just because I'm a mother doesn't mean that, you know, I'm, I'm going to underperform. So I kind of wanted to be like a, an example to kind of 
prove that like mothers can do this too. Um, but this conversation, COVID-19 has kind of accelerated all of that to now they're talking about like parents whose kids aren't going back to school and how do we accommodate for them? That like, that would have probably never have been a conversation or something that had taken seriously until they saw it like in action. Like the fact that we're working from home, it's like, it's crazy. I, I go through like bouts of like anxiety and like guilt and like moments where I'm like about to lose my mind um, to like gratefulness, like, mm-hmm. you know, like happy. Um, I'm, I, the future is positive, like for me. It's not scary. Um, I actually think this is setting us up for a better future is how I feel. What are some things you can share with a younger version of Lee, perhaps, or somebody who is excited to potentially enter the world of advertising and marketing? And who knows what that industry is going to look like in 10, 15 years. But based looking back from where you sit, um, all that you've gone through and all that you've observed, um, what are some tips and perspective gaining advice that you might want to share with somebody who's in that shoe now? Mm-hmm. I think for a mini version of me, I probably would say like, you know, don't try to be like other people. I think constantly trying to fit in mm-hmm. is, uh, works against you. Um, if there is something that you truly want to do or, or aspiring to like accomplish as a goal, um, Life is too short to not take that plunge or take that risk. And I think that's what it was for me, like finally accepting that, like, you know what? My parents are gonna, aren't going to like this. They're probably don't, they're not going to support it, but I don't care. Like, I'm going to do it for myself. And that, that was the best decision I could have made for my career. So for anyone who wants to get into advertising, um, I, that would be the biggest advice. I would say, like, take a risk. Like, don't be scared. This has been... Um... One of the more fun conversations I've had, um, I hate saying that because other guests might be like, what about mine? Uh, (laughs) But I think it's different talking to parents who are going through this collectively at the same time. Um, You know, our our kids are about the same age, so we've sort of progressed through our our, our parent journey um, concurrently. So it's been a challenge. And I think as we look to what kind of parents we want to be, um, not from a, oh, my dad or my mom is this job title at this company, which matters nothing, but in terms of creating opportunities and the support system and the memories that, um, unfortunately, our parents maybe were not in the position to provide for us because they were busy trying to survive and no fault of their own. They didn't, they were literally trying to raise us the best that they could in a world and in a decade they were not familiar with. Um, so all the props to them. And, and so on this mother's day, go, if you haven't sent flowers yet, cause it's the socially distant thing to do, call her, just surprise her, do, do something nice. I think when we talk to guests, particularly with, um, uncommon career paths, bold career paths, um, sometimes we have misconstrued that decision as a rejection of our parents' love or a defiance of their order. And I'm here to tell you that you can do both. Choosing to do something different than they wished for you is not disobedience. We were taught that. Our parents told us that they were proud of certain things and tied it to specific academic and professional achievements 
stop doing that. It's toxic and it's bad. <laughs> you can be equally grateful for everything your parents have done for you and still choose to do the thing that makes you happy. That's called life. Um, if you're graduating right now, if you're looking at internship opportunities, I've heard one too many times, well, it's the thing that I think I should do. It's what I've been told is good. And it may not even just be about going to medical law or engineering school. There are many people choosing um, high stress, very mundane business jobs because it has this allure of it's the next shiny toy. Um, but pursue everything that you want. Look, I'll give you guys a little secret. Nobody in the history of HR will give you shit about what you did during the summer of 2020. <laughs> Reasonable human being will understand what we are going through and realize that this was your chance to sort of reset, as we all are. Um, so thank you for providing the context, especially on on, on the mothers. I think um, underappreciated, um, expected to do more. As you mentioned, in your field, not only the creative direction of the client work, but the collective culture of these externally seemingly fun environments, the cultures were created and enforced and reinforced by people who weren't moms and who certainly were not moms of diverse backgrounds. So it's good. It's so inspiring and awesome to see people like you rise to the levels that you have earned, um, but also not be so focused on just the work, um, but take time to mentor, to create an internship curriculum at the at the agency and to take time out of your already busy life um, to work on the parent items. Because if you're so lucky, you get to have a little human being in your life and that little tiny person will change everything about the way you view the world. And, and that is just, just so amazing. Um, Lee, thank you again for coming on the show. Um, we have talked, you and I have talked about coming on the show for a little while, um, long before this uh, stay-at-home stuff happened. And, and so I, I'm grateful to hear your story. I've always found um, your story inspiring because you decided early and you stuck to your decision to go off the beaten path. Um, so um, would love for you to help us finish out the show um, by sharing a letter to us. Uh, Dear Asian Americans is a letter not only to us and from us, but ultimately for all of us uh, to inspire um, and to give hope and to share stories of the little girl who is feeling left out, not only in Catholic school, but in a very high intense academic environment or somebody for whom maybe feel like they're being forced to study something or go to a school that is against their human desire and what they know they were put on this earth to do. So I'll start the letter you finish and share with us anything that you'd like to share with the Asian American community. So uh, please finish the letter, Dear Asian Americans. Uh, dear Asian Americans, continue fighting the good fight. Uh, stay true to yourself. Listen to your gut. Um, no one knows what's best for you more than you do. And don't feel guilty for making decisions that others might perceive as selfish. Um, be grateful and thankful for the opportunities that you were given, um, whether or not your parents were immigrants um, and sacrificed, you know, coming to this country to make a better life for yourself. Don't hold resentment for things that they don't understand, but continue to push forward 
and pave a new way for your generation and for the future generation to come. Thank you. That was very beautiful. And nothing is beneath you. If you want the job, find people's phone numbers and cold call the shit out of them until you get a job. <laughs> I, you know, this might be the old dad in me talking, but people got to be willing to put in the work. Yeah, um, I, I, you put in 100% of the time you put in the work, um, you'll get something out of it. I'm growing this podcast purely organically. I'm crazy. So I'm putting out, I don't know, it, it'll be now know, 50 episodes in the first two and a half months. You're growing your own cooking Instagram, which documents your cooking journey, which I don't know how, and I'm sure I'm not the only friend who's told you this, how the hell do you have the time to do that in addition to, because it looks like your your kitchen is, is a perfectly light lit and decorated kitchen. Um, tell us quickly about that and why you wanted to create a, a source of creative expression outlet for you in, in something that you love doing. Yeah, I, I've always loved cooking. I started cooking when I was like eight. So um, I've always come home and like cooked dinner from scratch. Like I don't, I don't like meal prep, I cook. And it's really tiring sometimes, but it's gratifying because it's like an artistic outlet for me in a way. I think work obviously is a lot more political and less artistic for me mm. at this point. So for me, cooking brings me a lot of joy and I like to feed people. I like to host people. So um, my kitchen, by the way, is not clean. It's Instagram magic. <laughs> so don't think that, but uh, no, it's, you know, it's, it's not a chore to me because it's a hobby and that's probably why it's, it looks easier than it is, but I just enjoy doing it. Very cool. Um, check out Lee and her cooking on Instagram at cooking off the cuff. Uh, we'll put the links to her LinkedIn and other ways to connect with her. Um, if you're a young woman um, wanting a mentor in the world of advertising, um, follow Lee, learn from her, learn with her. Um, she may have a fancy job title, but we're not that many far. We're not too far or that far ahead in the game of life. Um, just a short decade and a half ago, we were all in your shoes. And whatever thing that you think is the end of the world um, and seemingly so, 2020 has been a really crappy year. Um, life gets good. Life gets better. Um, you either life gets better, actually, or you learn to realize that the things that are stretching you out today shouldn't be stressing you out, and you learn to appreciate and see life in a different way. Lee, thank you so much taking time away uh, from your your kid and work to spend a little bit of time with us to share your story on this Mother's Day. Happy Mother's Day to you uh, and to everybody out there um, hustling. Have your husbands, have your dads, or have somebody else put the kids down early today. Go have a glass of wine. Um, celebrate everything that you've done and that you will continue to do. Lee. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me and, and putting me as your Mother's Day guest. That is amazing. That makes me very happy. I, I wish I would have taken the credit for it before we started recording because <laughs> in the beginning I was like, oh, I don't know when you're going to be listening to this, but why not? Well, you know, that's just wing it. I think that's, that's what it is. <laughs> That's my, that's my style. Just wing it and then you'll figure it out along the way. So uh, yeah, it, all, yeah. it all worked out. But thank you, everybody, anyone who's listening, um, really appreciate um, what you're doing. Um, I think it's really great. And I, like you said, I don't think a lot of people are doing this and it's very necessary. If we don't tell our story, some tone deaf old white guy is going to do it. So <laughs> I'd rather it be us. Bye, everybody. Bye. 
Thanks so much for listening. Hope you enjoyed my conversation with Lee as much as I did having it. It's really great to see people who look like us, people who look like our kids, thrive in industries where we were not visible um, just a short two decades ago, and to make sure that our voices and our opinions and our humanity is represented in a medium, in a business where so much of it is going to impact our purchasing decisions and the way that we are advertised to and, and talked to. So thanks to Lee for spending time with us. Um, if her story resonated with you, if it inspired you, if it made you smile, please take a moment to share the episode and the show with a friend or two. Take a moment to text your mom, to call your mom, to check in on her. I know it's not an easy time for us to be uh, home and staying safe in our own home. So uh, maybe this is going to be a different Mother's Day than a traditional one where you're sharing a meal together, but does not diminish our love for our mothers. In fact, I think it's the only way that we can show love to make sure that uh, they are safe and that we are safe as well. So thanks to everybody. Enjoy the Sunday. Enjoy Mother's Day. Um, we're approaching some really, really great conversations this week coming up. So thanks again for listening. Be safe, be happy, and be healthy. This has been your host, Jerry Wan. And I'll see you next time.